You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Acute coronary syndrome, an umbrella diagnosis that encompasses both a type of heart attack known as non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction and unstable angina or chest pain. It is usually caused by a blood clot temporarily or partially blocking a coronary artery. So where are we in 2007? What are the current guidelines? Do we balloon these patients? Do we balloon and stent them? Are we still giving thrombolytics? Should we send them to surgery or just let the patient cool off? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Deepak Bhatt, Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Coordinating Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bhatt. Oh, thank you so much for having me. He's been taken to the cath lab. He has a culprit lesion. You've decided to stent this patient. Now we are faced with another conundrum. What do we stent him with, BEAR or DES? Um, the choices you mentioned, a bare metal stent or DS or drug-looting stent, or, or if, if stenting has been uh, picked as the, the correct uh, option, those are the two uh, items on the menu. Now, bare metal stents have been around for you know, years, decades at this point with excellent results. Um, the so-called Achilles heel of the bare metal stent has been re-stenosis. So the immediate result, generally speaking, is quite good, but there's a small risk of the stent re-stenosing or clogging up again with plaque and or scar tissue. Uh, and in general, if that's going to happen, that happens between three to six to nine months, really biologically speaking by six months, but sometimes there's just a detection lag that is by the time the physician notices or the patient makes an appointment or the stress test is ordered, you know, nine months or so might elapse. But after nine months, pretty unusual, though not impossible, for a stent to clog up. And um, for that reason, interventional cardiologists were looking for something better to try to get rid of that Achilles heel known as restenosis. That's what led to the development of drug-looting stents, highly effective to reduce restenosis, cutting the rates uh, from probably about a 15% rate with bare metal stents to less than 5% with drug-eluting stents, so a bit over 50% reduction. The downside, however, appears to be a very, very small hazard of late stent thrombosis or clotting up of the stent that is higher with the drug-eluting stents versus the bare metal stents in the context of discontinuation of antiplatelet therapy. So for a patient that's going to be really compliant with their antiplatelet therapy, and I'm speaking now specifically of aspirin and clopidogrel, uh, a patient that doesn't have problems with bleeding, that sort of patient is a good candidate for a drug-eluting stent. On the other hand, a non-compliant patient, patient perhaps that's non-compliant for economic reasons, they can't afford their clopidogrel, patient that's got a history of lots of bleeding problems in the past, even before going on aspirin and or clopidogrel, those sort of patients probably best still to stick with a bare metal stent where the obligate duration of antiplatelet therapy to prevent stent thrombosis is much shorter on the order of you know just a few months. And if you really have to, uh, just even two to four weeks is probably sufficient. Not optimal, but probably sufficient with a bare metal stent. So both are good treatment options. It's a matter of trying to figure out uh, which patient is better served by which type of drug-eluting stent. Can you take the Plavix away after a certain amount of time, or does it really matter? Do we have to find out if it's bare or, or drug-eluting? Yeah, that's a very complex question, though one that comes up every day in clinical practice, certainly in cardiology practice. Uh, my office gets calls every day from ophthalmologists, surgeons, gastroenterologists about stopping 
antiplatelet therapy in a patient that's received a drug-eluting stent. So there's no uh, easy or quick answer, but I, I, some really important points, I think, uh, are for a bare metal stent, the minimum duration of aspirin plus clopidogrel or Plavix, which is the brand name, is two weeks. So, you know, even if you, let's say you've done a stent before somebody gets elective hip surgery, and whether that even needed to be done is, 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 is a separate topic, but let's say that it really needed to be done, uh, you'd want to wait at least two weeks before discontinuing the aspirin and clopidogrel before having surgery or doing anything, because if you operate within those two weeks in a freshly implanted stent, the risk of catastrophic outcomes is quite high. This has uh, been well documented. Lots of studies support that. So with a bare metal stent, minimum of two weeks. Now, optimal time, a stent isn't fully endothelialized, even a bare metal stent, till about six months or so have elapsed. And, you know, that's an average. Some people will endothelialize sooner or later than that. And uh, randomized clinical trials, namely the Credo study uh, published in JAMA a few years ago, showed that uh, a year of dual antiplatelet therapy, that is aspirin plus clopidogrel, is better than a month in a patient that's received a stent. And then when the study was done, it was all bare metal stents. So uh, the guidelines for uh, angioplasty stenting would say in a patient that's at low risk for bleeding a year after a bare metal stent. Now, with a drug-eluting stent, the most recent guidelines also in- endorse a year even more strongly, in fact, they say at least a year of uninterrupted therapy. So again, if you know that your patient's going to need hip surgery, and if you're doing a stent procedure, probably want to put in a bare metal stent, because if you put in a drug-eluting stent, the guidelines really would support waiting a year to operate. And maybe that'll be okay if it is really very elective hip surgery, but if it's more urgent, you know, waiting a year may not be practical. So at least a year is what the guidelines would say for the drug-eluting stent patient for dual antiplatelet therapy. Some of us, though, are certainly going beyond a year, or probably, I should say, many of us in interventional cardiology are going beyond a year because we've seen these cases of very late stent thrombosis. They're rare, but when they happen, uh, they can present as an MI or as a fatality. Dr. Bott, you mentioned that ideally it would be nice to keep patients on one year of aspirin and Plavix. So that's ideally. Uh, What if they are bleeding or bruising frequently? Which which one would you take away first? Would you take away the Plavix or the aspirin? That's a, a tricky situation. Uh, if the patient's really bleeding and it's a sort of bleeding where antiplatelet therapy needs to be discontinued, uh, and, and um, that certainly does arise. The most common cause is GI bleeding. There, aspirin probably is a little bit higher of a risk of the two just because it has a local effect as well as a systemic antithrombotic effect. So there's some evidence from the Capri trial that there's less gastrointestinal bleeding with uh, clopidogrel or Plavix than there is with aspirin, uh, though the dose of aspirin used in that study was 325, which is a bit higher perhaps than many people are using now. But at any rate, of the two marginally safer um, data supporting Plavix instead of aspirin, though the downside of that approach, of course, is the cost approach. But if you were going to keep the patient on for a year anyway, then that's not so much a factor. Let's get back to um, acute coronary syndromes. I keep taking you away from that topic. No, it's okay. Let's say acute coronary syndromes really touch upon a lot of other aspects of medicine. I'm wondering these days how one, being a cardiologist, decides when to say, you know what, these coronaries are a little too complicated for me. I think this person needs bypass. What is your criteria for bringing in the surgeon? Or, or do surge, are there not even any surgeons left anymore? <laughs> 
Well, you know, uh, sometimes uh, if you'd ever gone to an interventional cardiology meeting, there were such, um, you know, jokes and PowerPoint presentations about cardiac surgeons uh, looking for employment or mm-hmm. begging on the street for food. But, but you know, that hasn't come to pass, and I don't think it will. I think there's always going to be a need uh, for cardiac surgery. It's going to continue to evolve. Uh, the exact techniques may change. The exact type of patients being served by cardiac surgery will continue to change. But there's always going to be a need for cracking the chest open and, and fixing things mechanically. Uh, that's never going to go away. Uh, certainly the proportion of patients receiving coronary artery bypass surgery has gone down. In the U.S., the latest numbers, say from the uh, Crusade Registry, an ongoing registry of ACS patients, about 11% of patients that come in with ACS undergo in-hospital bypass surgery. So that's much lower than it used to be in the past. Um, but I think there's always going to be those patients that have, say, diffuse three-vessel coronary artery disease, where it just isn't practical to, you know, repave the entire coronary tree with with stents, whether they're bare metal or drug eluting. Patients that have got complex anatomy, bifurcation lesions, chronic total occlusions, multi-vessel disease, with those sort of complex lesions, where I think they are still better served by bypass surgery. So part of the answer to your question is going to be hospital and operator uh, dependent. That is, some places that have very aggressive interventional care, of course, they're going to push the boundaries. Uh, but, But even in such centers, and we're pretty aggressive here in terms of interventional cardiology, I think all our interventional cardiologists would be in agreement that there's still a very valuable role for bypass surgery. Dr. Bott, you mentioned the crusade data, and they're, they're currently saying that 90 is the new 70. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, the crusade data looked at, at patients older than 90 with acute right. coronary syndromes. What did crusade teach us? Well, uh, first of all, it showed us that there are a lot more of those folks out there than perhaps is commonly believed. I, I've certainly personally cared for a, a number of uh, nonagenarians, and, and it's a challenge. Those folks really have uh, high rates of ischemic events, but they also have high rates of bleeding. So a lot of the things that we'd want to treat them with, since they're at high ischemic risk, uh, anticoagulants, intravenous 2B3 inhibitors, aspirin, clopidogrel, etc., the whole toolbox of antithrombotics, there's no question that the rates of bleeding skyrocket in the very elderly, especially as you stack therapies together. So it, it's a tough situation where these patients are at high ischemic risk and, and you know, the, the approach of, well, you know, they're too old to do anything about it really isn't that good an approach because their short-term risk of complications is quite high. You know, it's got to be tempered in some respects with the fact that the risk of complications is very high. So I think it's important to treat the patient more based on their biological age than their chronological age. That is, with careful selection, and of course you can't always be perfect, but as a physician with careful selection, there certainly are some nonagenarians that do benefit from aggressive approaches such as angioplasty and stenting and even open-heart surgery. Uh, but you've got to be very careful in selecting those patients. So if it's a nursing home resident you know, in their 90s coming in with a small troponin leak, their medical management may be the more prudent thing to do, especially if their creatinine is 3, hemoglobin is 10, history of GI bleeding. On the other hand, somebody you know, that's uh, 93 but uh, is playing tennis or you know, still golfing, you know, there if they come in with a non-ST segment elevation of I think it's probably reasonable to go ahead to the catheterization lab and see what things show. I mean, if it's diffuse three-vessel disease, it might be time to pull back and just do medical therapy. 
On the other hand, if there's a discrete 90% mid-LAD, I'd say why not go ahead and stent it? The risk's probably pretty low, and the benefit's probably going to be quite high. So there, as is always the case in medicine, but even more so a tailored approach is called for. And, and, and Crusade supports that. Certainly we can um, uh, see pretty good outcomes in nonagenarians, but we can also see lots of complications like bleeding. Dr. Bott, finally, I, I know yesterday was your day in the cath lab, and I was wondering if you could just share a story or two about what you saw and what you did in real life. Sure. Well, in the catheterization lab, you know, we've got a combination of elective procedures, uh, like your cousin you mentioned, who we're bringing back, you know, because they've got stable angina that can't be well controlled with medicine, or maybe a stable angina, large territory of ischemia. But we also get you know, acute uh, myocardial infarctions, which uh, I suppose are what really make the day interesting, and where there's you know robust data that procedures like stenting are truly life-saving. Uh, you know, a recent case uh, got actually a very interesting one with somebody that had a stent that was put in. Uh, 13 years ago, a bare metal stent, in fact, that uh, had a bad cold and stopped their aspirin. I'm not exactly sure why they made that connection, but uh, they stopped their aspirin. First time they'd stopped their aspirin in 13 years, and three days later came in with a large inferior myocardial infarction. We, you know, we went ahead and opened up the stent, performed a balloon angioplasty, got a nice result, and that was somebody that came in hypotensive, arrhythmias. Somebody, if they just tried to tough it out at home, likely would have had an arrhythmic uh, sudden cardiac death. So, you know, it's those sort of procedures that are really gratifying. And I think why interventional cardiologists are so enthusiastic about what they do. Deepak Bot, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, a pleasure as always. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>